Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 33. Working on the business and working in the business are not the same thing. And where you're really going to grow is working on the business. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. Where every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm Cal Hardy, your host. And on today's episode, we have Alex Bates of Chapel Ford Farm in Pennsylvania. There they grow pastured chicken, turkeys, and lamb. And before we talk to Alex, I encourage you and I ask you to do me a favor. I encourage you to visit the Grazing Grass website at grazinggrass.com and sign up for our email list. If you're using a computer, it'll be on the right side of the screen. If you're using a phone, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and the form is there. We ask for your first name and your email address. We have some exciting things coming your way and we'll be announcing those first on the email list. Also, we want to give a couple shout outs today to past podcast guest. Austin Troyer of episode 24 is on episode 194 of the Working Cows podcast. And August Horseman of episode 15 is on episode 21 of the Herd Quitter podcast. I can't wait to listen to both of them and I encourage you to go listen to them as well. Let's talk to Alex. Alex, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. Thank you for coming on and joining us today. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to talk about what we're doing here at Chapel Ford Farm. Wonderful. Alex, tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation. So I got into farming um, through Boy Scouts and did technical school at high school and went all the way and graduated through Virginia Tech with a... Uh, livestock management degree, interned at a few rotationally grazing um, farms and worked at a commercial beef farm to see the other side of agriculture. Um, and now I'm farming in Gettysburg, uh, raising about 5,000 broilers this year, some Thanksgiving turkeys and summer turkeys, um, and then have my Tetzel U flock and the lamb flock. Very good. So you got exposed to farming early on. Did you grow up on a farm? No. Um, both of my parents are in IT. Um, so kind of very opposite world. Oh, yes. But I'm just glad that they support what I want to do and are open to the idea of me, you know, living the hard life. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. And when you went through... Uh, Virginia Tech, was there a lot of uh, classes or co coursework with regenerative ag and practices that support that? It was very commercial-based um, so far as to say they wouldn't even call people farmers. It was all producers, this, produce that, um, oh, kind yes. of that mindset. There was a few... Um, and I gave a few um, class presentations uh, for projects on rotational grazing. 
and teacher was very open to it and she liked the idea of it and but it just wasn't the mindset they haven't changed over the mindset yet of that oh, yes. so i'm hoping soon you know they might start teaching that and teaching more ways of how to farm right i i fully agree with that so what got you interested in rotational grazing then because you're in your your coursework at college, you're already interested in rotational grazing. So I, for my college degree, I had to intern at a farm and I interned at, I, as simple as it was, I went on Google and typed in farms on Google map in my area, found this awesome farm, uh, Longstone farm in Lovettsville, Virginia, and worked with her the summer. And she really opened up my mind to rotational grazing they did pasture pigs with annuals, um, which not a lot of farms and pig operations are doing that I know of. And then she has beef cattle and that really opened up my mind to the premium forage that you can grow. You can get four to five grazings a year versus one, two on continuous grazing. She really opened my mind up to that. And before that, I didn't know about it as much, um, so I just kind of stumbled upon it and delved deeper. Wonderful. You know, sometimes luck has to get us there. There's there's a path we're following, and and luck or, or divine intervention got you there. Yeah, it definitely did, so and I'm thankful for that opportunity. So you finished college. You said you worked on a commercial farm? Yes, I worked at, I actually worked for Virginia Tech at their commercial beef farm, which was a uh, registered Angus herd seed stock operation. Oh, yes. Um, I kind of wanted to see, delve into that world and see what was going on there um, and kind of compare the two because at this point I already interned for Longstone Farm. And that really opened my eyes up to the ways that side of the farming does um and during the summer there was some rotational grazing it was just on a lot much larger scale with 300 head in 30 acre paddocks for one day instead of 30 head in you know poly wire and splitting it up so oh yes and then all i did there was feed um we fed silage um every day to the steers and research projects and sometimes to the um, heifers that were going to the sales. So, but all the cows there were grass fed, um, which was a surprise to me. So very good. So you worked there for how long? I just worked there for the summer. I was an emergency summer hire. So, and I knew that going in, um, and I really wish I got the opportunity to stay for the full breeding season because their breeding season coincided with school. Um, so students can learn how to AI, um, pregnancy checks, all that. So that was kind of a bummer. And then I moved on, had a few other farming jobs after that. Now I'm here farming in Gettysburg. And when did you start your farm in Gettysburg? So... I started last year, um, stumbled upon um, a few people who wanted a few other farms who wanted broilers and they didn't want to brood them. 
in a brooder. They didn't have the setup or the time. So pretty much all last year, all I did was grow Cornish Cross out for three to four weeks and sold them to other farms and they would finish them and process them and sell them. So that's all I did last year. And this year I'm jumping uh, head first into the retail direct marketing uh, at a couple of farmers markets, selling online and doing some wholesale business. Very good. Is this the first year for turkeys? So I raised turkeys in high school. Um, oh, okay. And I did it one time then. And so right now I have a few turkeys outside that my plan with them is some ground turkey um, for 4th of July and summer uh, when people are making burgers and all that. Um, and it's kind of my test run for Thanksgiving turkeys. Um, oh, yeah. And it's gone amazing so far. Uh, the only death I had was to a fox and a turkey getting stuck in the electric netting. So, which oh, was no. sad, but you know how they are. They're not super smart. So, <laughs> so, yes. but I think I'm going to get some Thanksgiving turkeys um, and try that because currently there's no one really in the area doing Thanksgiving turkeys. Oh, yes. Yeah. And with your jumping back to your poultry for just a moment, are you still raising brooder size chicks for other farms? Yes, I am. I'm doing about just um, 1,800 of those and the rest of the 3,200 are for me um, and my wholesalers. So I sell at a couple butcher shops um, and then a few restaurants and the rest is retail so and i can't keep chicken in stock i'll have it i'm processing every four weeks and it'll be gone in two weeks so oh, it's a good problem good. Yes. it's a good problem but it's still a problem so i'm upping production um and just had 900 chicks come in last week so yeah very good i find it really interesting about you brooding chickens mm -hmm. for other farms that's a great way to get started in it without doing all the rest yeah so you can find that, some farms to work with that worked out really well and it's going awesome they doubled their numbers from last year um and they're happy so i've been charging them per chick on that instead of a weight um per oh, week yeah. just makes it simpler um and i handle all that and I bring them the chicks, um, and then they finish them out on pasture and process them. So they don't have the space to do the brooding setup, and they don't really want to. they rather outsource that, someone who has the time. And um, I had experience raising broilers in high school, so I had some experience going into it. So, But it's been working out awesome. Um it's nice because I can fix some problems um, before I see my chicks have it, like with heat or something like that. It gave me some experience before I went all the way the full eight, nine weeks too. So, Oh, yes. That, get, that gives you people you can call on. You've got a great network right there from working mm -hmm. with them. They can really provide you some advice and experience there. Yeah. Yeah, that's been working out awesome. So. 
tell us a little bit more about your brooder um, setup and how you do that. So I took out the tack room. Um, that was my brooder for the first year. Um, epoxy the floor, paint the walls, um, put some heat lamps in there, and ran automatic waterers um, up to there. So my goal for brooding is efficiency, efficiency. I don't want to be watering. I don't want them to run out of water. Um, <laughs> right. So, and they grow better if they have water, obviously. So, and then this year I've tripled my space and took, we had this old parlor room from, I want to say the sixties, seventies, um, when the farm was a dairy farm and took all that out, took the headlocks, um, cleaned the floors, took the feed baskets out, took the water lines out and just put up some, uh, two foot high plywood walls Okay. and ran the waterers and put in propane heaters instead of heat lamps. I feel those are more consistent and have a larger area, even though they cost a little more with the propane, but they have thermostats too. So, Oh yes. They do turn off during the day when it's warm. Are they propane like brooders with a, a cover on them that you can lower to the ground or are you heating the whole room? Um, they kind of heat the whole room. I do have them low to the ground. Oh yeah. And turn down pretty low. So they turn off, um, pretty easily. Um, so they're the same heating system they use at like Purdue Tyson, the commercial barns. Oh, okay. And I was very skeptical with dust and burning down the, uh, 200 year old <laughs> barn. Yes. So, but it's been working out good. I just clean it after every four weeks after the batch goes outside um, and just make sure it stays clean. So, and that's, it's been working well. Very good. So the birds are going outside at three weeks. Is that what you'd said earlier? Um, three weeks in the summertime and four weeks early in the year. Oh, um, okay. I usually start March. Um, and I think this year I ran a super early batch in February to give that a try. Oh yes. And see what that went like. Um, and they went outside at four weeks, but they still had heat lamps and I was kind of tugging along an extension cord <laughs> through the field. So it worked okay. I'm not sure if I'm going to pursue it again, just cause it's made for a long season. Oh yes. And they, they grow a lot slower with it being that cold. So, oh yeah. On your birds, you're, you're moving them out to a chicken tractor. Yeah. So I have two 12 by 20 chicken tractors um and those have automatic watering systems uh the bell waterers with two 30 gallon uh trash cans and it just uh siphons into there and then i use 50 pound feeders and they move every day or twice a day depending on how much forage there is if I'm in a drought, um, you know, in the spring, if there's a lot of grass, they can stay there for the day. But if most of the grass is dead from a really bad drought, like last year, then I move them in twice a day. Oh, very good. And are the tractors, are they self-built or did you buy pre-built ones? They are self-built. 
um, just for cost reasons and customizability. And I didn't like how the big ones that you can buy and assemble had those uh, bars right at your knees and ankles. Oh, yes. <laughs> and yeah. So, but I think in the future I might end up going to that. Um, so then they're all metal and I don't have to deal with rotting wood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but for now, they're just self built. Oh, yes. On your tractors that you built, did you did you come up with your plans or did you use um, some plans from somewhere else? So I self-built them and toured uh, some farms and saw their operations and their tractors and what they liked about it, what they didn't like about theirs, and kind of melded a bunch of designs into one. Um, and that's kind of how they got built. Um, so no plans that you can find online. Oh, yeah. And for processing of your birds, are you processing them yourself or are you taking them to a processor? So I am very thankful to have a USDA poultry processing plant for small farmers five minutes down the road. Oh, wow. Um, and I also work there uh, part time. So, so I see my product from day one all the way to packaging um, for that. And oh, then we do nice. do some on-farm processing um, for our wholesalers to cut costs there. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's really a great experience working there for you and being so close to your farm. Uh, for me, I did a few birds and uh, finding I didn't really want to process them myself. Um, because my wife told me she wouldn't eat them that way. Anyway, so <laughs> I I found a processor, but they were an hour and a half away, which probably on the grand scheme of things is not that far, but it was far enough that it dampened yeah. my enthusiasm. Yeah, uh, I saw, uh, I've talked to another lady who goes eight hours one way. Oh, for wow. The processor, and she says she goes, does five, six hundred at a time, and... Oh just sits there all day um so that's kind of that's a little too far for me but <laughs> yes. so i'm just super thankful to have that right there right next to my door pretty much so in addition to your chickens we talked just a little bit about your turkeys are you growing them in your same brooders to get started or same setup so the turkeys I can't remember how long they stayed inside for. Maybe six, seven weeks. I got them in January, so oh, okay. They stayed inside for a little longer, right? And it was just a few, so the brooder was easier to keep clean. So I only got fifteen turkeys um, for a test run, and they're about forty pounds. So that's a lot of ground turkey, and brooder's easier to keep clean with fifteen turkeys versus four hundred <laughs> broilers. Yes, so. But yes, they did start inside, and then they went outside, and now they're just in electric netting with some portable shade structures, um, and they're moved about every week. Um, depends on how their area looks, basically. Oh, yes. And is that working fairly well for you thus far? Um, yeah, it is. So I am happy with how uh, turkey raising has gone so far, so... Um, the electric netting there has been working well. They are super easy to move. You know, you just 
move their shelter and they just follow. Oh, yes. So I haven't had to chase any really. They found a hole in how to jump over the fence currently, but they only have six more days until they're going to processing. So I've just been letting them live their life free range. And so, oh, yes. And kind of, kind of just open the gate for them to run around the farm. So, what breed are you using for turkeys? Uh, they're, it's just the commercial whites, the oh, okay. broad breasted whites. So, in high school, I raised heritage bourbon reds. So, I had no experience raising the commercial ones. And when I raised the heritage reds in high school, that was a, a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Um, with them sleeping in trees and stuff like that. So, I really, I don't think I'll ever raise heritage turkeys again. They're just too wild for me. Oh, yes. And will you process them at the same processor as your chickens? Yes. They'll be going to the USDA facility because he can grind um, and I can't grind under insumption. Oh, yes. Nor do I have a grinder. So, Have you started testing the market with your turkeys? How's the reception been for that um so I, yeah i've been people are asking for ground turkey and i get asked almost every week at the farmer's market um do i have ground turkey when's the ground turkey coming oh well, very so good. it seems pretty like there's a market there um so and i haven't really seen anyone with ground turkey in the area except the uh processor who has a meat store also oh yes when you think about your your pastured poultry and your turkeys are they about the same amount of work or are there some differences there the turkeys are definitely way more low maintenance and i would rather raise turkeys over the chickens because the chickens are in tractors moving them every day um filling waters filling feeders the turkeys they're kind of i just move them weekly and kind of let them do their own thing honestly i don't lock them up at night um i haven't had i had a problem with predators one time but that was it it just got one turkey and never came back so i would definitely rather raise the turkeys over the broilers but oh yes there's more risk in turkeys because you're keeping them for four months six months versus eight weeks with a chicken so true personally i've never raised any turkeys so um, I find it a little fascinating. I don't know if I'm brave mm-hmm. enough to try that. <laughs> I like them. Uh, they're <laughs> a lot more curious than chickens. Oh, which yes. To some people can be a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing because <laughs> they come running to me and <laughs> they're like, they have personality. And oh, yes. In my opinion, it just makes it hard for to, when I see them go. Um, Oh, when they're yeah. like that, so, but, and that's one of the cons of them. You keep them for four, six months, and you start to know them. Right, right. In addition to your pasture poultry and your turkeys, what else do you have on your farm? So I have Tetzel sheep. They're a wool meat breed. Um, I'm not a big hair sheep fan. In my opinion, um, and I know everybody has Katahdins, 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 oh, yeah. Croy, and I'm just 
not a fan of them. Um, I understand their purpose. Easy keepers, no shearing, low parasite risk. But I just like the big, muscled uh, lambs that Ted Cells have. I've been gaining about a three quarters of a pound a day on them. Just oh yes, poor fescue grass. Um, not really anything special, and the huge half pound rib chops I've been getting out of them. Just it's awesome. So I do have more. I got to watch out for worms, watch out for fly strike and clip hooves a little more and pull a lot more lambs, but I'd rather do that than have a slower growing, slower growing lamb. That's going to be smaller anyway. So I think I pulled 50% of my lambs this year. Um, One of them was just coming out wrong and not their fault, but the other ones I have 12 pound, 13 pound lambs. Oh wow, that they're are twins. Yeah, and those yes. are twins. I had a fifteen pound single um coming out. So it's just it's more management and more labor, but a fifteen pound lamb day one is kind of you can't beat that. So Yeah, that would not be near as fragile as the six and a half pound uh Katahdin lamb. Yeah. Yeah, and the the moms are three hundred pounds, two fifty. Um oh yeah. So they're they're big. I think one of them bruised my rib. Um, she's kind of oh no. My my mean one. I grabbed her uh, lamb to throw her in the stall uh, where I keep the lambs for a couple weeks. The moms, because I lamb in March, so it's kind of cold for the woolies. Oh okay. Um, and she <laughs> came up behind me and ran me into the wall <laughs> when I was carrying her lamb. So, oh. but so they're but they got good mothering instincts. Um, and if you select for the right rams and the right use where you don't get like huge wide lambs, just the big muscled ones, it's not uh, as bad as I make it sound. So, but I'm oh, yeah. just loving the Tetzel breed so far. And are you lambing in jugs or uh, lambing outside or in the barn? So in the winter they have access to the barn um, and when I say the barn, it's more like just a run-in um, overhang on the barn. Oh, okay. So it's not really inside, but it's sheltered from the snow and the freezing rain. And I just watch their udders every day. And when they their udder gets big and red, uh, then I put them inside the stall. And sometimes I don't catch it. And they might be out there for a few hours, but... It, I haven't lost one to a cold. I just put it up, put it under a heat lamp, put a blanket on it, and it's been fine. Oh, very good. Very good. And then uh, once you get grass coming on, you, you're turning them to pasture mm-hmm. and you start rotating them? Yeah, so I shoot the f- for to start grazing April 10th. Um, oh, okay. And that's really when I want to start rotationally grazing. Everyone gets... Uh, sheared in late april early may so and then their daily moves at that point um sometimes weekly moves depending on weather and shade access um so right now i'm in a portion of the field where there's no shade so they've been weekly moves where i can give them shade oh yes and they've been doing fine in there so do you shear them yourself or you have someone come in and shear them (laughs) 
No, I do not shear myself, thankfully. I found a shearer <laughs> who does awesome work. Um, oh, well, very good. Travels the whole East Coast and uh, charges $50 an hour, and they can do about 20 U's an hour. So it's... Oh, okay. I understand some people are like, my shear is like $200 an hour or whatever, and I just got kind of lucky finding this one. That's where the cost is like barely anything. Oh, yes. Uh, I have attempted to shear a sheep or two in my past, and it's not not an experience I care to repeat. Yeah, yeah. I bet your back was pretty <laughs> sore after that, so... I was a lot younger then, too, so that made a big difference. Yeah, well, I'm surprised because when they're <laughs> sheared, I have a few bottle babies. Um, when I bought my registered herd, I bought some from a 4-H'er that was getting out of 4-H. And so they're, per, they're super tame, halter broke. They were shown um, at fairs, and they're the worst ones to shear. They're the ones that are the most oh. wild things when you shear them, like flying all over the place. And then my oh, other yeah. one that hit me into the wall she just lays there fine so it's super interesting to see that but i'm just glad i don't have to mess with that I just grab them and hand them off to him so oh yeah on your paddocks and rotating them what are you using for fencing um two strands of poly wire i am not a fan of electric netting by any means just for moving them i always get super frustrated when it gets tangled and stayed away from that so i'm using two strands of poly wire and then i have a mix of high tensile and um woven wire for the perimeter fencing so okay and then i'm just using stepping posts and they don't escape i might have a few lambs the lambs are the biggest problems um running through but they only do when it's like pretty hot and they use and there's limited shade or they just see clover on the other side but it's like oh yeah maybe once every other week one gets out like not oh, a okay. it's not a big problem at all so right i've been happy with the two strands and i'm hoping i can go to one strand sometime this year but we'll see on that so right and how hot are you running your um poly wire um so i have a charger at the barn and i think it's coming out around eight kilovolts eight thousand volts oh, okay um so pretty hot and it's a speed right charger so i got the remote um oh which, very good which is awesome so i i don't know if i can do it without the remote honestly <laughs> in fact the the podcast episode 32 right before this one this one will be episode 33 we talk about the remote because i love my stay fix remote and yeah. i've got a place without it and i'm i'm gonna change out that energizer yeah so i love the remote yeah well the stay fits <laughs> and the speed ride are the same things now I right think they're, they moved them over so yeah, I and think they have i saw ken cove fence supplies online has alligator clips now so if, oh so you don't need a remote but i like the remote so oh yeah step over or I want them to step over. Um, sometimes I do that, or sometimes I lift the fence up. I don't risk getting shocked at all. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm in love with that remote. You, I don't think you could rotationally graze far away from your barn 
without that thing besides turning the whole shutting the whole system down and risking someone finding out before you get up there right yes that's true i will admit so i've got a remote here on the the place here where my dad and i run cattle and i had some calves go across the fence and i'm like why they never do <laughs> and um and i've got a a creek area that's kind of low and i thought they just walked down the creek mm-hmm. and i didn't worry about it much and um i go up to the barn later i forgot i'd turn the charger <laughs> off to do something and i never turned it back on and why why i didn't do it with the remote I don't know, but well, I'm like, as I leave the field, I'm like triple checking to make sure I turned it back on with the remote. <laughs> yes. Cause I'm like, I know I, I, sometimes I just lay here before I go to bed and I'm like, did I turn the fence back on? <laughs> did I lock up the chickens? And it's like, right. and then you got to go out and check. Yeah. So I just made sure, but that's definitely happened where I'd like go out the next day and there's lambs everywhere. <laughs> Because somebody found out the fence isn't on. Oh, yes, yes. Now, on your lambs, what kind of pasture are you grazing? Um, How do I put this? Awful fescue. Um, <laughs> oh. and so, so you're not a fescue fan? No, I am not at all. I despise it. Um, I am not an end-of-fight-free fescue fan just because you don't get the same vigor or growth as end-of-fight fescue, and I'm not an end right. of fight fescue person <laughs> so <laughs> so back in the 70s and 80s the old owner of the farm sold the topsoil so i just oh. have clay and topsoil it was a big thing in this area um back then everyone was just selling their topsoil for some reason so and then they planted in fescue and it's straight fescue i got like two patches of orchard grass and by patches i mean like five pieces like five oh. strands. So, so I have a no-till drill um, that I should begin in October and I will be planting um, an annual summer mitts starting next year, consisting of sunflowers, sorghum Sudan, brassicas like beets um, and cow peas and vetch. And the goal of the, brassicas obviously open up the soil reduce my compaction levels more um water retention because i feel the effects of drought way sooner than most people oh yes so uh that's my goal there and i'm just gonna let everything kind of die off and try to start building my topsoil back it might be seven ten years but you know you got to I'd rather start now than wait. And then I have a few fields coming out of corn and soybean that we've been renting to another farmer. Um, And in those fields, it will be a Kentucky bluegrass, Timothy mix with a few kinds of clover. So, and then in the falls, I do plant a uh, crimson clover um, that comes up in the spring. So, I'm hoping my drill will be here in time for me to do that this year, um, September, October. So, but we'll see. I'm not counting on it. I don't want to psych myself out and get all ready to plant and then, you know, 
manufacturing issue or something like that. So, oh, yes. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll be there for you so you can get started on that. Yeah. The uh, pastures are pretty. So it's been hay fields for the past 20 years. Um, so they're pretty sparse um, on forage. Like I can run through nine acres in, you know, a month or two with 30 head of sheep. Like I can oh, yes. move, move through it pretty quick. Um, so I'm really hoping the annuals, the Sorghum Sudan, um, all that stuff will really bump up my quality of my forage. Um, aiming for that pound a day gain on lambs and bump up the um, uh, quantity also. So, oh, yes. We'll see. I've seen a lot of other, some other farms had good luck with that. Um, and that's what we used when I interned at that um, uh, Longstone farm. Uh, she used that for her pigs and grazed annuals with her pigs. Oh, very good. So. Wonderful. Now, you've not been doing this a long time, but when you think about what's happened, what are some challenges you've had? So water has been a big challenge. I don't have, I have like two spigots at the barn and that's my water. So I have a IBC tote, uh, 250 gallon tote that I carry around on the tractor and has a little harbor freight pump um on top and i just have a hose going into the tote and a hose coming out and that's how i put water everywhere and since another challenge i've had is parasites on my lambs and use because with how sparse the forage is they graze it down pretty quick um chewing on the clovers and stuff so they're right oh, there yeah. at the ground level constantly picking up those worms and stuff so that's been a big challenge for me this spring just trying to keep that under control and what are you you doing to to help alleviate that um i've just been deworming so far okay i definitely have so i have one texel katahdin and i'm waiting she has one lamb and i'm hoping to see what that lamb looks like on a finished side compared to my other Tetzel's and Tetzel uh, Dorset crosses. But I haven't had to warm her once. So oh, yes. I might begin a Katahdin Ram in the future, even though I'm not a Katahdin fan. But if I can get close carcass or the same carcass, I will definitely add a Katahdin um, oh, yeah. Ram into my flock for terminals. Yeah, try and get some of that parasite resistance there. Yeah, so and I'm hoping the annuals yeah. um, will also help with that and them not grazing so low to the ground. So, Right, um, yes. Yeah, but it's definitely better. I'm sure it'd be way worse if I wasn't moving them every day. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sure you're right, too. Yeah, yeah, so I know that's helping, and that's definitely helping with um, foot rot. So I haven't had a big foot rot problem this year. Very good. Where do you see your farm going in the future, or what are your plans? My plans are um, I want to up my broiler production, obviously, and lambs. Um, I'm hoping to add pigs um, in a few years. I want to get a few more lambings under my belt, and I'd rather spend the finances and the time on the lambs and growing my ewe flock because I can't keep lamb in stock right now it's kind of i get 
process a few and then sold in a few weeks. So oh, I yes. really want to be able to hold it um, in stock longer. So, and then for the pigs, I have a small two acre field and then an acre of woods that I'd like to do a annual grazing forested mitts kind of. Um, and I don't really have that hashed out yet at all, but it's what I'm thinking about doing so far with then they'll have shade in the summertime and then forages to graze in the spring and fall time. So, but we'll have to see when I get there, what that's looking like. So, right. And I, I don't have much to offer on the pastured pork. I've, I've thought about it as well. I was really close to, to buying some feeder pigs this year and, mm -hmm. um, and I did not, um, my wife encouraged me to quit trying to do everything and I had to concur. And so we didn't do it this year, but it, it's on my mind for a future project as well. Yeah. And I keep seeing some farms that, you know, there's people out there raising their pork outside um, or yes. in forested, but then they're not moving them or they're moving them once a month. It's kind of, you get those mud pits that I really want to oh, stay yeah. away from and keep the diseases out of that and not ruining that part of the field with all their rooting and stuff. So, but to each their own. So I'd like, right. I've seen awesome growth and fantastic pork on um, weekly moves um, and then super efficient pastures and soil quality after that. So. Yes, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it goes for you, and I'm sure it'll It's go always through. a learning process. Always is, and just when you think you have it figured out, uh, the animals will remind you you don't. Yeah, exactly. So that's been my whole year and my whole uh, uh, career so far. <laughs> yes. Well, Alex, it's time for our overgrazing section where we take a deeper dive into a practice or some part of your operation. What are we going to discuss on the overgrazing section today? Um, I thought we'd talk about, so I work at a butcher shop, the small poultry processing plant that I talked about earlier. Yes. Um, and it's definitely changed the way I farm. So all my lambs go there. Most of my chickens go there. Um, and it's, awesome to see the product all the way through i do all the cutting on my lambs and breaking that down into retail cuts so if i see like big rib chops i can make them single chops i can make decisions on the spot oh very instead nice. of telling someone else what to do and then it might not come out the way i want if i have a huge six pound shoulder i could cut the shoulder in half get two three pound shoulders i can see management decisions i can see broken wings on the chickens and it can it'll change how i handle when i load them up into crates so it definitely helps a lot and it helps me understand where the retail cuts of the lambs come from and all that so it's it's changed how i farm and it's changed how i raise my livestock for sure uh, for the better so how has it, what are some specific practices? I think you mentioned one right there that's changed on your farm because of you being in the processing plant. 
the fact that you cannot when you pick go to crate chickens you can't grab their wings oh yes um to load them in the crates because you're just breaking wings bruising wings and the usda inspector has you remove that piece from the chicken and then you get an imperfect whole chicken that doesn't look good oh yeah and you're throwing away money and weight so i even though it's slower i just grab one chicken at a time and grab it by its body like oh, two okay. hands underneath the wings um and the breast and back so it's slower but out of all my batch like out of 200 300 chicks i might have one lose a wing two. Oh, okay. and so that's definitely changed the way and i've seen other farms come in with like 50 percent of the birds have broken wings oh wow and so that's definitely helped a lot and on the lamb side it allows me to make decisions on the spot based on what the lamb looks like and all that i can see you know shoulder weights before they're packaged and if i want to cut it up what i want to turn into ground lamb um whether it be the shoulder or the leg or the belly whatever he also has a usda smokehouse so i can do special stuff like smoked turkey breast for lunch meat oh yes uh lamb bacon and i can choose what i want if i ha see a lamb belly big enough i can turn it into lamb bacon or if it's small i can just do ground lamb with it instead of telling him oh i want lamb bacon and then the lamb belly's like two pounds three pounds and you know you're just it's not cost effective when if it doesn't hit a certain size because you're paying the same price or you're paying three dollars a pound to get it smoked um so and the product doesn't look good or you don't get a lot so oh, yes. it allows me to make decisions on the spot is my point and it's helped a lot yeah. So, so it's really affected your handling of your chickens, and then you're able to make some mm -hmm. decisions on the spot about sizes of cuts and what yes. you're going to do. Uh, something I see yeah. how it could help you in the future is when you're looking at those confirmation of those lambs, you know what the lamb looks like on the hoof, mm -hmm. and then you go through and you're part of the processing, so you can start seeing some correlation there to know what you're wanting to breed for. Yeah, exactly. And another part I forgot to mention was uh, since I work there, I do get priority over bringing my own stuff oh, in. Oh, yes. Um, and I can look at the calendar for poultry for the whole year. If someone cancels, I know. And I can be like, oh, I don't want to do my own processing this weekend. And I can put my stuff in there. And for the lambs, I'm just like, hey, can I bring a few lambs in in a few weeks? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. I'm not planning a whole year out like a lot of people. Yes, so, true. That but, that's a nice little benefit right there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a huge benefit <laughs> instead of it's like, you know, if you got beef cow, it's like, oh, call us when the calf hits the ground kind of right. thing. Right. It is. And you're yes. planning two years out. So the lambs, it's like my plan's two weeks out. If I see a few if I know I'm running low or a lambs are getting uh if I see a few big lambs in my herd, I'll be like, just bring them in. That helps a lot. That's a big motivator um, for me working there. So, Oh, yes, that's really nice. 
Alex, let's move on to our famous four questions. They're the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what's your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? So for book, it would be um, Kick the Hay Habit by Jim Garrish. Oh, um, yes. That really opened my eyes up to winter stockpiling and buying, bringing nutrients onto the farm, not letting them leave. So that one was a big one that got me into, uh, even though I don't like fescue, I can winter stockpile it. Um, and that's kind of the only thing I like about <laughs> it. So uh, only thing keeping me from ripping it out of the ground and starting over. Oh, yeah. So, And then I also have another book called the, forage crop pocket guide or the uh southern forages um book which it sounds like a it's basically this pocket guide i carry around that has everything about like characteristics of forage grasses stand establishment gestation periods on animals water requirements for animals grazing systems grazing formulas um pounds of forage available per inch and a bunch of other stuff and it's like this little tiny 50 60 page book yeah and it's fairly small size fits in your pocket i'm thinking i have it i'm looking over at my bookcase but i don't see it but i'm gonna have to pull that book back out it fits in like a shirt yes. pocket almost yeah. um and it's like i use it all the time and it has like nutritional values on like a ton of different grasses like four week old bermuda grass and oh, eight yes. week old bermuda grass and how the quality goes down over time it's like it's crazy how much what it has in it for being a 60 page pocket guide like i i look into it all the time and i think everybody should get one it's like on amazon for 15 dollars i i'm going to have to look and see if i have that i'm just like 95% sure I have it, but I haven't used it in years. I'm, a, I'm embarrassed about that. I'm going to have to go. As soon as we get off here, I'm going to go look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I keep it in my truck, and I go to that thing quicker than Google, oh, yes. honestly. Our second question is, what tool could you not live without on your farm? Um, That water pump on my water tank I talked about earlier. I just... I would never be able to have, could afford to put bury PVC pipes or dig wells out in my farther pastures. Um, it also allows me to use, like on a rented farm, bring water out there instead of using the homeowner's water. Oh, yes. So that's a big plus. Um, yeah, I just could not live without the thing. It runs on the tractor battery. Oh, okay. And it's like, 290 gallons an hour like it's a pretty good pump for the size of it and it's like 30 dollars. oh very good super cheap so yeah. it's at harbor free i'm just i don't know what i'd do without that thing very good if if you can find a link to that um i don't i don't know if harbor freight has everything online but if you do find a link for that we'll mm -hmm. put it in our show notes yeah i can find that so and those IBC totes, they're like 250, 275 gallons, and they're on all over the place. Oh, Facebook. yeah, I see them on Craigslist all the time as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and I think you can get it for free. You can, like, 
$30. Yeah, if you take your time, you can get them really cheap. If you get in a hurry, it's only the high price ones. Yeah, yeah. You just <laughs> got to watch out what was in it before. <laughs> so Right, yes. Our third question, Alex, is what would you tell someone just starting out on their grass journey? I've thought a lot about this question. And so I'm a very business, financial-oriented person, in my opinion. And I love doing like knowing my cost down to the cent for every single item like whole chickens and my profit margins and my thought would be working on the business and working in the business are not the same thing and where you're really going to grow is working on the business marketing knowing your finances knowing your costs and keeping records instead of you know you might be out there moving animals every day moving chickens feeding grabbing feed going selling wholesale you can sell to as many wholesale retailer customers as you want but if you don't know your cost you won't be around that long you know so you got to really know your finances and know your business i love that alex you know we can get caught up in working in our business but we have to have to have that other part working on our business great advice yeah and i know a few other um the feed mill i go to is a small uh farmer i see him in his office more than i see him mitts and feed nowadays and he's even told me you know before he was like oh if only i work 10 more hours a week 20 more hours a week i can get so much more done and i'll be better off and now he's like i just pay someone to feed my sheep and mitts feed now and do the marketing and expanding and that kind of stuff so and he's been better off and happier because he's not working 120 hours you know <laughs> anymore oh yes and our last question alex where can others find out more about you so we're on uh we have a website chapelfordfarm.com and i'm on facebook instagram i post to facebook from instagram so they're both the same posts and what you're getting um i'm at a few uh gettysburg farmers market and i was at a virginia farmers like special pop-up market so um you can find me you can call me email me i love answering questions so and i love doing farm tours very good and we'll post links in our show notes to those sites alex we appreciate you coming on and sharing about your journey thus far and we're excited about where you're going. I'm was I'm excited to be here and I uh you know, happy to talk to you and share what we're doing. So it's been going good so far and can't wait for the next five, ten, fifteen years. Very good, very good. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. Each episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you'd like to be featured on a future episode of the podcast, visit grazinggrass.com and click on the Be Our Guest link. Fill out the information and we will be in touch. Also share this episode with someone who may find it valuable. Also follow our Instagram page and our Facebook page. And as always, keep on grazing. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. 
I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.